0: Jesus Christ is the most fascinating person who has ever lived. He is the most fully respected, most fervently loved, most faithfully worshipped, most talked about, most written about, and most famous person who has ever walked on the earth. The Bible, which is centrally and essentially about Jesus, is the most published book in the history of the world, and it's not even remotely close. What is especially extraordinary is that the fascination with Jesus began before he was born, as testified through the prophets and through angelic proclamation. The unusual fascination with Jesus was evident at his birth and even when he was as young as 12. But the fascination surrounding him accelerated dramatically when he entered public ministry. There were myriad accounts of eyewitnesses to his miracles, the magnitude of which had never been seen before or since in human history. And then the fascination surrounding Jesus absolutely exploded about three days after he was executed because witnesses, including 500 at one time, ...began talking about the fact that they had seen him alive. Whoever you believe Jesus to be... ...to discount these witnesses is to evade historical reality. The fascination with Jesus has continued unabated for 2,000 years. And the incomparable influence of Jesus is still a part of billions of people's lives, even as we sit here today in the 21st century. Whatever whatever your level of fascination with Jesus, whether or not you believe Jesus is God, as Mark wanted us to know just a couple minutes ago, a man named Luke wrote a letter documenting the life of Jesus to a man who may have found himself in a similar place that you are as you sit here this morning. Luke wrote an account of Jesus' life for the expressed purpose that this man might have certainty concerning the things that he had been taught. So, whether you are wholeheartedly enthusiastic about Jesus, or perhaps curious, but maybe a little conflicted. Let's accept Luke's implicit challenge and examine his well-investigated claims for ourselves regarding the most fascinating person who has ever lived. Today, we begin our study of the glorious gospel of Luke. Our passage is chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Here then, the word of the God who desires to be known. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Lord, would you lead us by your Spirit now so that we might have certainty deep within our souls about the things that we have been taught. Do this by the power of your Spirit, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. When our kids were growing up, some of the most common questions we would ask them were about their friends. They would periodically say something like, I really like this boy, or I really like this girl at school. So we would naturally respond to that by saying, well, what is it that you like about them? Why do you like them? Or sometimes we might proactively ask them, who's somebody at your school that you respect? Then why do you respect them? What is it about that person or about their character that you admire? We might even say, who do you reflect? Who do you think reflects the character of Jesus in some way at your school? What were we attempting to do? What were we attempting to do through this line of questioning or by? pressing in in these situations. We were trying to help them think about what is truly important about another person. We were trying to help them think about what's worth admiring or appreciating about someone else besides the obvious things like he's really funny or she's really pretty or... He's really smart. In Luke's gospel, we are given so many things to not only admire and appreciate about Jesus, but reasons to follow and to worship him. Now, sometimes Christians are better at telling people that they need to follow Jesus than they are at showing people why he is so utterly wondrous. But Luke helps us tremendously with this task. Right out of the gate, in verse 1, we realize that something unusual has happened, or someone unusual has entered the scene. Inasmuch as many inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished or fulfilled among us. Chapter 1 and verse 1. Talk about an intriguing introduction. Let's not gloss over this too quickly. Something fascinating, something extraordinary has occurred. Like when some thing or, or, or someone of, of massive consequence leaves a crater-like footprint in the world, whether that's for good or for evil, it deserves to not only be recorded, it deserves to be thought about and analyzed. I mean, just think for a moment about how many books have been written about World War II. Massive consequences for this. World. In this case, the events surrounding the person and work of Jesus were so amazing, just so utterly astounding that that many people. Many people were trying to put everything together. They were trying to compile a narrative of everything that had occurred over the previous few years. And this included a particular man named Luke. In fact, we see Luke's fascination and love for Jesus come through In verse 3, it seemed good to me also, having followed things closely for some time, to write an orderly account. And we know that up to this point, verse 2, those who were from the beginning were eyewitness and ministers of the word. They had delivered them to us. Luke is including himself there. So the only reason that he knows what happened was because of these faithful people who communicated the truth about Jesus that they had seen with their own eyes. And heard with their own ears. They were witnesses to the miracles of Jesus. And they told others about them, including Luke. Now, Luke wants to take that baton and communicate that to others. Because he realizes this is not just important. This is the most extraordinary thing that has ever happened in human history. And Luke wanted everyone to know it was actually true, beginning with Theophilus in verse four. Now, to speak personally for a moment here, I completely get this reasoning. I am totally tracking with Luke. I completely understand the desire that having seen the reality of who Jesus is to then think people have to see this people have to know him they have to see him as he is revealed in the scriptures now I can't speak I can't speak for others but the reason that I preach, the reason I have dedicated my life to ministry is because Jesus is so unlike anyone I have ever come across. He's just incredible. He's so kind. He's so compassionate. He's so tender. He's so bold. He's so powerful. He's, he's just magnetic. Just look at how people respond to him. He's so willing to love. To love in a way we have never seen. He loves without reservation. And without fear. He's so on point. With everything he thinks. And everything he says. And everything he does. He's just. He's just mind blowing. When you think about. Who he is. And he's able to bring any man or woman to the end of themselves. In his glorious presence. So the reason that I feel burdened to preach God's word. Is because I realize people need to know Jesus. And to the best of my ability, I need to show Jesus to them as he actually is revealed in the scriptures by the power of the Holy Spirit. Before God called me into ministry, I started writing a commentary on the Bible for my children in case I died. Before they were old enough to know, to really understand who Jesus was. As a father, I felt so burdened that they would see the glory of Jesus just in case I died before I could tell them I wanted them to have something in their hands that reflected, this, this is what dad thought. This is what dad thought about Jesus. I see. I think Luke felt that way too. I'm confident that that's why Luke wrote his gospel. He wanted others to see Jesus as he actually is. Now, Luke, he he shows us. He just he shows us so many glorious things about Jesus that. Even that we would not know otherwise had he not written this particular letter. For example, only from Luke do we learn about the Good Samaritan. Or only from Luke do we understand the parable of the prodigal son. In fact, Much of the birth narrative of Jesus, it would be utterly unknown to us if it weren't for Luke. We wouldn't know that Gabriel came. That is, chapter 1 and verse 19. He that stands in the presence of God. He came to announce to Zechariah that Zechariah would have a son who would point people to Jesus. And then Gabriel came and talked to Mary. If it weren't for Luke, we wouldn't know all the joy All the joy that surrounded the birth of Jesus. That might be implied from some of the other gospel writers, but we wouldn't have we wouldn't have this account, this detailed account of the joy that broke out everywhere. I mean, think about one of the one of the most glorious little mini scenes in all of the Bible is that when Mary shows up pregnant with Jesus. John leaps for joy in his mother's womb, filled with the Holy Spirit. (laughs) That's just pure joy. We wouldn't know about Mary's song of praise. We wouldn't know about Simeon's joy as he held the baby Jesus in his arms. We wouldn't know about Anna, the prophetess from the tribe of Asher. We wouldn't know about the shepherds keeping their flocks by night. And we wouldn't know that an angel announced the birth of Jesus with these words. I bring you good news of great joy. And we wouldn't know that when he said that, the sky ripped open. We wouldn't know that tens of thousands of tens of thousands of the heavenly hosts began singing as they shone like stars in the night, and they sang glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to all people. That seems important to me. Praise God that the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to write it all down, to talk to people about the details so he could record it forever. Which begs the question how did Luke know? How did Luke know what Mary was thinking? How did Luke know what happened in the fields at night? You remember when we were preaching through Acts, which is the sequel to the Gospel of Luke, that towards the end of that Gospel, Paul's imprisoned for two years under house arrest. But we rejoice because during that time he wrote four letters of the New Testament. And we rejoice in that. Wouldn't it be fascinating to find out that Luke had about two years on his hands? And it was during this same time period... When it seems like the gospel is in chains. That Paul is writing four books for the New Testament and Luke is composing either his gospel or the sequel, the book of Acts. Amazing. Now, we know why Luke wrote first four verses. But how is the book organized? And, and what specific themes are prominent in Luke's gospel. The book is organized fairly simply. The opening chapters provide the extended birth narrative and preparation for ministry up and until Jesus announces the launch of his public ministry at the beginning of verse 4. And Jesus does so in an absolutely epic fashion. He reads from the scroll of Isaiah 61 and declares, today, that is, at this moment, in me, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And then he sat down in the seat of authority as a teacher. There's a new sheriff in town. And his name is King Jesus. Now the middle section of the book describes his public ministry and we'll be all over it. Um, The last week of Jesus' life is marked by that triumphal entry in Luke 19. The last several hours of Jesus' life come into view, Luke 22. There's the Last Supper, praying in Gethsemane, Peter's denial. Jesus is crucified in 23. He's resurrected in 24. He walks down the Emmaus Road with some disciples and just so happens to explain to them that everything in this book is about him. And then the last scene in the Gospel of Luke is that Jesus gloriously ascends to heaven. Now Luke Luke shares 19 parables, more than any other gospel. What's somewhat unique about Luke's presentation is that he tends to group the parables thematically. For example, in Luke 15, we'll read consecutively the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, better known as the prodigal. The Holy Spirit features prominently in Luke's gospel, just as he does in Luke's sequel in the book of Acts. Jesus is shown to be, by Luke, Jesus is shown to be untempted by evil, utterly opposed to evil, and to have absolute authority over evil. And he does this again and again and again. Joy shows up all over the place, perhaps most notably, most powerfully, most beautifully in the glorious scene where Jesus himself is rejoicing, rejoicing in the Holy Spirit. These are all important. But if I had to select one scene, one scene that illustrates Luke's focus in his gospel, I would select Jesus' interaction with Zacchaeus in chapter 19. We sing little kid songs about Zacchaeus, right? Going up in the tree and those songs are cute and it's all wonderful. But the reality of the matter is the Jews hated tax collectors. And Luke tells us Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. That'd make a nice children's song. (laughs) Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, chief tax collector, we hated your guts more than anything. But praise God for Jesus, he saved you. Verse 2. The point is, Zacchaeus is an extraordinarily... Unlikely convert. There probably wasn't a person in Jerusalem that was praying for his salvation. They just hated him. Let God's condemnation fall on him. But Zacchaeus has heard about Jesus. He's so fascinated, he's so fascinated by Jesus, he climbs up a sycamore tree just so he can catch a glimpse of him as he walks by. But Jesus stops at the base of that tree and looks up and says, Zacchaeus, come down here with me, because I'm coming to eat at your house today. Zacchaeus responds with overwhelming joy and an overwhelming desire to pay people back if he's wronged them in any way. Jesus' words to this despised man Summarize the main theme of Luke's gospel well. Today, salvation has come to this house. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Luke 19. Herein lies the central hope of Luke's message, summarizing the ministry of Jesus. Look, Luke himself is a Gentile. He's the only Gentile author of the New Testament. He's an unlikely convert. That is, he's not a member of the chosen people of Israel. So, I think this is one of the reasons why Luke highlights unlikely converts throughout Jesus' ministry. I think in large measure because Luke knows that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost because because Jesus saved him. And that's because Jesus loves outliers. Jesus loves the marginalized. Jesus loves those who live on the periphery. And he went after them. For example, recall that the context, of course, is the first century. Luke shows Jesus demonstrating extraordinary mercy toward women. Chapter 7, verse 11 through 15, Jesus raises the only son of a widow from Nain. They were carrying out the funeral procession, carrying out his body, And Jesus had compassion on her. And he raised her son from the dead. Jesus shows compassion towards children. Luke records the fact that Jesus also raised from the dead Jairus' little girl, who was his only daughter. But Jesus had compassion on her and on him. Luke shows Jesus identifying so closely with sinners that he developed a reputation as one who hung out with them. As in chapter 5 and verse 30, when Jesus called a man named Levi, better known as Matthew, to follow him. In fact, Jesus hung around with sinners so much that the religious leaders, Jesus says this in chapter 7, verse 34, accused Jesus of being a drunkard and a glutton. Have you ever heard anybody say that to you? Like, hey, I know you love Jesus, but to me, when I read the Gospels, the guy's a drunk. The guy eats way too much food, and all he does is party. Every time there's a party, there he is. I'm not following that guy. It's ludicrous. And in fact, Jesus makes that exact point later in the gospel, and it'll be glorious to unpack it. But the point is, Jesus wasn't afraid to be identified with sinners, because he came to seek and to save those who were lost. Now, Luke shows Jesus willing to draw foreigners to himself. Recall, the announcement from the angel is, this is good news of great joy. For all the people. When Simeon picked up baby Jesus in his arms, he declared that Jesus would be a light of revelation for the Gentiles. I bet Luke loved including that. My question for you this morning is, have you experienced the joy of Jesus? knowing that the son of man came to seek and to save the lost were you one of the outliers were you one of the outliers that jesus takes so much joy in saving were you hiding from jesus Were you hiding from Jesus until He came and got you? Until He found you when you were lost in darkness? You could not only see, you couldn't see your way out, you didn't want to go out. And He came and got you and saved you. Or maybe you've sat in church every Sunday for years, utterly fascinated by Jesus. But the question is, has your fascination with Jesus become saving faith in Jesus? That's an important question. That's an important question because justification is not by fascination alone. Rather, justification is by faith alone in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how fascinated you are by Jesus if you don't trust in Jesus. So how does faith alone in Jesus save If you're not sure, there's a a second kind of complementary theme in Luke's gospel that helps to shed light on Luke's primary focus, which is to show Jesus as the Son of Man who came to seek and to save those who were lost. That second complementary theme is how Jesus actually does that. Now, as those who once were lost and now have been found we rejoice in the death and resurrection of Jesus because we know that without Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, we would have no hope of salvation. That's not only a given, that is the glory of the gospel itself. Dead center, center of the bullseye. But that's not the theme I'm talking about at the moment. We're introduced to the theme I'm thinking of early on through Mary's theologically rich song of praise in chapter 1. Mary, among everything else that she was, was a great biblical theologian. <laughs> in verse 52, Mary says, the Lord has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Now, this is an idea that we'll see repeated throughout the book. And it's rather poignant when we consider that the book begins with Jesus born in a humble manger and it ends with his ascension into heaven. And in between those two realities, Jesus says that he saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. In other words, how the mighty will fall and how the humble will be exalted. But the idea is not just about an exchange of wealth or an exchange of prestige or an exchange of authority and power. This is the key. It's about how a person receives the gospel itself there's a sense in which those who are wealthy and powerful and self-sufficient need to be brought low in order to see, in order to see their need for the gospel. Because if they don't, they're never going to put their faith in Jesus. Conversely, those who are low and debased, who might walk around with their head held low all day, what do they need? they need their eyes to be lifted up. They need their eyes to be lifted up so that they might be able to see that the hope of the gospel is actually for them. The cross is the great equalizer of all people. Whether rich or poor, famous or outcast, powerful or weak. The great exchange offered in the gospel is not from rich to poor or vice versa. The great exchange is that your sin, no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, your sin needs to be exchanged for the righteousness of Jesus in order to be saved. However you come to see that. That's what you need to see. Or you will not be saved. The high and mighty need to be brought low. To see the mercy of the kingdom. To see that their self-righteous, self-reliant sin. Is just as offensive to God as the gross sin of vile sinners. They need The high and mighty need to express true dependence on another. And if you are wired for self reliance, you know how hard that is. But unless you depend upon Jesus, you have no hope of being saved because you aren't righteous enough to save yourself. You must receive salvation like a little child, receives an unmerited gift. What about the downtrodden? They need to have their eyes lifted. They need to have their eyes lifted up to be able to see that the good news of great joy, this hope in Jesus Christ, it is it really is for them. I mean, if you've had so many tragic and horrible and difficult things happen to you in your life, you could see how over time you might think, God's forgotten about me. Or even if the gospel's true, the gospel's not true for me. And eventually you give up hope. You you stop looking for hope. But the reality is, even if you are steeped in self-condemnation, the reality for the downtrodden is your sin is not more disqualifying than anyone else's sin. In other words, the blood of Jesus can be applied to you. The mercy of God has come to you in the person of Jesus Christ, and he has found you. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, no matter how far beyond finding you thought yourself to be, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Praise be to the one true God forever and ever and ever. As we transition to communion, I want to consider a somewhat somewhat unique aspect of Luke's gospel, namely how much Luke's gospel revolves around food, that is around meals. Robert Karras has commented in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, he's at a meal, or he's coming from a meal. Sounds like pastoral ministry. (laughs) I remember one time in college being interviewed, and the interviewer asked me this question If you could have a meal with anyone dead or alive, who would you choose and why? I answered Jesus. And I answered the why question basically with the introduction to the sermon. I argued exactly the same way. And that is, Jesus is the most fascinating person who has ever walked on the earth, and it isn't even close. So I want to have lunch with Jesus. But apparently, I'm not the only one who wanted to have a meal with Jesus, according to Luke. In Luke 5, Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners at Levi's house. In Luke 7, Jesus is anointed at a meal hosted by Simon the Pharisee. In Luke 9, Jesus feeds 5,000 men, about 20,000 of his closest friends and followers. In Luke 10, Jesus eats in the home of Mary and Martha. In Luke 11, Jesus condemns the teachers of the law during a meal. God's condemnation is upon you, pass the ketchup, moving right along. In Luke 14, Jesus is at a meal when he urges people to invite the poor to their banquets, not just their friends who can pay them back. In Luke 19, Jesus invites himself to dinner at the home of Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus is overjoyed to receive him. In Luke 22, Jesus eats the last supper with his disciples. In Luke 24, Jesus shares two meals after he was resurrected. With the disciples on the Emmaus Road, and later with his followers in Jerusalem. In other words, he ate two meals in his glorious resurrection body. Which foreshadows the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. So these meals are just appetizers pointing forward to that glorious day. Therefore... When we take communion, as we will in a moment, as we eat a fellowship meal together, we acknowledge that we have received the grace offered to us in Christ by his sacrifice on Calvary's cross. And therefore, through the Spirit, we genuinely commune with the Father and his ascended Son through faith even as we long for the day, we can share a fellowship meal with the Father and the Son and the Spirit together, face to face, in the kingdom that is to come. Oh, come Lord Jesus.